Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. It's January, which means that I am in the snowy streets of Park City, Utah, reporting on this year's Sundance Film Festival. For the next week, I'll be gathering the best critics on the ground here to talk about each day's premieres on the podcast. So stay tuned and also subscribe to the Film Comment Letter to keep up with our dispatchers, interviews and more from this year's Sundance. All right, yet another day at the Sundance Film Festival, yet another podcast. Uh, today's crew is especially special. Yes, I say this uh, at the when I introduce every single crew, but you know, you are all special to me. <laughs> um, I'd like to introduce uh, today's crew. Uh, first of all, we have uh, Maddie, who you've heard so much at this year's Sundance. Yes, you're probably sick of hearing my voice. I'm Maddie Whittle, uh, assistant programmer at Film at Lincoln Center. And we have Vadim, also has been known to appear on the Film Comment podcast at Sundance before. Hello, I'm Vadim Rizov, coming from Filmmaker Magazine, and I will not be tormenting everyone with my job title today. <laughs> yes, just go Google it. And... Uh, a guest that I'm always excited to nab at festivals, even if it takes some scheduling because he's very busy, Justin. No busier than all of you fine people. Uh, <laughs> Justin Chang, uh, Los Angeles Times, Fresh Air, and uh, New York Film Festival, Main Slate Selection Committee member. Since Devika gave me a hard time for not mentioning that the last time, I was still getting used to it. Yeah, come still, on. still pinching myself. Anyways, uh, that's what these <laughs> listeners are tuning in for, okay? To hear from the Main Slate Selection Committee member. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, we have a bunch of kind of interesting movies to talk about today. And the one I want to start with is one we all saw, I think, yesterday. My probably one of my favorites of the festival so far, A Different Man by Aaron Schimberg. One of the, I think, a couple movies here that, I mean, Justin, you may not know this, but uh, feature a lot of uh, New York cinephile community members uh so that was fun to sort of see familiar faces but also i go into such films with a certain level of caution as well because it's very easy to sort of see your friends and you know not be able to kind of take distance um so i'm always wary but this one really uh, i thought was just so strong um justin why don't you do the honors uh <laughs> summarize sebastian stan plays an actor who had, it's like, how do you even begin? I'm trying to, I thought I'd just enter in the most basic level, but an actor who has neurofibromatosis and a unique condition that has left him facially unique, I think is the, is the term to, to use. And the movie also features um, Adam Pearson, who has neurofibromatosis in real life and has, you know, you probably remember him from Under the Skin, uh, Jonathan Glazer's film from 11 years ago. And it's 
can somebody else do something? Like, sorry, my brain is so fried. I'm like, I, I will, I will help yeah. out here. So first of all, it's probably worth noting that Adam Pearson was also in Aaron Schimberg's second feature film, Chain for Life, as an actor in a in a similarly kind of meta cinematic Hall of Mirrors type situation that you know, um, it, you know, is explicit about its own metaphorical dimensions. Uh, so Sebastian Stan is a is an actor with neurofibromatosis who lives in a uh, a fairly uh, tough apartment building and only gets parts playing people with neurofibromatosis mm. and uh his new neighbor is renata reinsve of the worst person in the world and he pines for her and when he's not pining for her he looks around and sees lots of couples surrounding him and eventually he can't take it anymore and he takes his doctor's suggestion of trying some experimental surgery which after a fairly grody period of face peeling results in him <laughs> looking like the actual sebastian stan um at which point i think i should probably stop yeah Let's. I think we can say that after that, Adam Pearson appears in the film. And best not to know too much more than that, but um, Sebastian Stan's character, Edward, tries to kind of live life as a new person without letting people know who he used to be before his experimental procedure. And um, he realizes that maybe it wasn't his face, it was his personality that was the problem all along. Uh, is that sort of? Um... I think um, I, I that was. I think that was what I immediately thought when I watched the movie, and and I thought about it a little bit more. I think that's definitely yes, that's the thing. But also, like, why is his personality the way it is? It's because his face objectively changed the way people treated him. So what we are talking about here is a sneaky trauma movie, not the uh, not the kind of um, maudlin one, but one yeah. where the 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 trauma is not ennobling, and does not make somebody like a nicer or better or kinder person, but in fact just makes their personality so damaged that they are unable to come back from it. And I think, uh, uh, without going into too much detail, one of the fascinating tensions of the movie is that Adam Pearson's character, of course comes from a similar experience and yet is a profoundly different person. That experience has shaped him uh, in ways that are dramatically different from the way that that formative trauma has influenced it. Not to mention he's rich, which helps. Yes. Well, that certainly does. And that comes into play uh, in the, as the story progresses. Authentically British. <laughs> yes, that's right. He's, he's, uh, he's quite a character. And uh, I think so, to your point, Vadim, I think uh, the film is doing something very interesting with contrasting two different ways of responding to a trauma or a, a challenge in one's social presentation or social acceptance. And uh, the sort of contrast that is built between these two characters allows us to understand why exactly Edward's personality is the way it is, or if not why, then sort of what, how it works and how it uh, 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 does or does not determine his social fate. That said, I don't think the film actually helped us understand anything, and that's its strength. Like, I don't think the film is actually giving you an analysis of why Edward is the way he is, why Oswald is the way he is. I think, to me, the film gets at sort of the unpredictability a little bit of uh, your circumstances and how you think that one thing determines your lot. And sometimes that's not the case. And I think, especially as the film kind of, it really, uh, well, not devolves is the wrong word. Um, it... it uh, Edward sort of spirals and it, uh, you know, it takes on some really comic and also dark 
elements. And I think they tap into very relatable feelings of jealousy, of having done everything right and not gotten where you wanted to be, these sort of very universal, relatable feelings. Yeah, without it being a very, some kind of clear-cut psychological study. That's what I, it's very irreverent. It's very funny. It, it has some great and provocative exchanges on what it means to, for example, write a part for someone with neurofibrosis, you know, is, and then what do you do? Like, do you, yeah. do you, is casting someone who was born with it, like, fetishistic, exploitative, or the ethically the right thing to do, these sorts of, because, um, you know, Edward's an actor, uh, and Oswald kind of, I mean, Adam Pearson is, so you have to imagine all of this is kind of coming from his experience, but it just has so many of these very rich exchanges without pinning anything down morally, psychologically. And that's what I had so much fun with. It has bits of like Kafka, obviously. It has bits of like Cronenberg. And it just is wild, but also serious at the same time. I'll also shout out uh, the the sort of Lynch Lynchian elements of this film, which are uh, not quite as explicitly spelled out perhaps as the references that you're talking about Devika but it's very present and uh informs the sort of tone and the mood and this atmosphere that uh is sort of verging on an uncanny reality yeah it's just continually surprising and I really like that Devika about like it not being a really rigid or prescriptive movie in terms of like you know person with you know with neurofibromatosis or disability of any kind, you know, like what is, you know, not determining their lot in life. It also, it, it moves too quickly in a way. Like I felt the thing I really enjoyed about it was just the sense that I really didn't know where, where it was going. And it almost felt that I almost felt there were, there's a velocity, like a, a comic velocity to the movie that made me feel that there were things that were left out. Like there, you know, they, they're, they're, there's almost like they're jump cutting the narrative a little bit in ways that like, Oh, we're, we're ahead of you. And it's like, Oh, that, that happened. And, and I think that, I mean, the actors are also great, but Sebastian Stan, I really just really loved him in this. I mean, he is, it, it's interesting too how, you know, even though he is for the first quarter, half of the movie or whatever it is, or, or third, he is, you know, of course, buried under many, many prosthetics that are, um, that, but he almost seems more at ease in that than he does when he's, you know, beautiful looking Sebastian Stan afterward. I mean, the, and you, you know, the way he moves his body, the way his he still has the kind of, you know, shuffling gait of somebody who is used to being either, uh, you know, jeered at, you know, or ignored and just, you know, down, downbeaten. And it, it's he does this really great job of except for that brief moment when he's on top of the world because he's embracing life in his new skin. Um, just he shows you just the, <laughs> he peels all that back and shows you what, the, that it hasn't fundamentally solved the problem of who he is. And, and so, yeah. Um, I have to, I have to say that sitting right next to Justin, I can hear the radio voice. So clearly the, the tonality <laughs> and sonority is, is, is real. It's a real treat. And I can only imagine when you hear it through the microphone or in the, the recording, presence what it of sounds a pro. Like. Um, I was, I was going to say that since, uh, we did a bunch of, uh, cinephile shout outs, you know, I'll throw, I'll throw two more in, which is, um, 
the Romare staging in the uh, pizza parlor with the window out in the world providing production value, except that production value is juiced by very conspicuous actors who then uh, are definitely not just passers-by. So that's a nice little twist. And then, of course, Roman Polanski's The Tenant, a movie about a freaky little guy who thinks the world is out to get him, and it kind of is, but it's also a little bit his fault. Um, and I would also very gently suggest that part of the reason all of us like it so much in part is because it is a very cinephilic movie. It is. <laughs> and it, so it is shot is. on 16 millimeter and there is a sequence in there of this corporate video that is very pointedly shot on digital that looks hideous. And all of these things <laughs> will, of course, appeal to all of us immensely. And if it sounds good to you, it'll appeal to you as well. It, it has. Can I Can I uh, suggest that maybe there are hints of Elaine May as well? Oh, yeah. um, I, that's what kept coming to me. I'm not sure why. I think a kind of silliness, um, you know, and, and this kind of like urban characters kind of being unlikable but also silly and charming yes the uh, i had not made this connection at all but there's very much uh there 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 are hints of walter Matthau and a new leaf i think in sebastian stan's character can i introduce a not being a new yorker can i introduce a non-new york cinephile reference that i think has nothing to do with the movie but i just kept thinking about of course simon lang's the hole mm. just because the hole yeah. in the ceiling <laughs> and there's this dark and diseased hole that is yeah. of course kind of representative of just interior rot you know made manifest and it which plays you know and he keeps horrible things keep falling through it and bonking him on the head or just you know just just making you know his it's has nothing to do with it, but I kept thinking about it. I mean, there are broken limbs and severed parts, and there's a whole sequence of him soaking in a bathtub. I think there are some uh, little little side touches. Um, I think uh, I think we can uh, give this a, a thumbs up, four thumbs Very up. Very much so. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the best movie of the festival that yeah. I've seen. I agree. It's the best thing I've seen too. Um, I would love Maddie and Justin to talk about a movie called Suho that's also at the festival. I wasn't able to catch it, but I am keeping an eye out for it because it's by the directors of the film Identifying Features from a few years ago, which was quite interesting. Um, I think this seems sort of similar, combining elements, some elements of nonfiction and fiction, exploring sort of cartel violence in Mexico. But I'll I'll, uh, give it over to Maddie. Yes, um, as you mentioned, this is an, the next film by the directors of Identifying Features, Astrid Rondero and Fernanda Valadez. Uh, this film, in some ways, if you read the synopsis, you think you are about to uh, embark on a journey alongside a character who somewhat resembles Vito Corleone in uh, the Godfather saga, where he's you know, the, 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 the child of essentially a gangster, a, a cartel gunman in rural Mexico uh, who is uh, murdered and who and then the son, Suho, is uh, becomes a target. He, he has a target on his back because the people who killed his father suspect that he will grow up and be a threat to them uh, out of vindictiveness. And uh, so the film follows Suho over the course of his adolescence and young adulthood as he sort of is protected by these uh, women family members, his his uh, late mother's sister and her friend whose sons uh, sort of become cousins to him in a way, almost brothers. Uh, and um, the, the film is a very, in, in a way it's a very understated film. I think a lot is left unsaid uh 
as we see him move through the world and move through uh, the sort of expectations that are placed upon him, both in the familial context, but also, you know, he's not allowed to go into town because his aunt fears for his safety if he's exposed to these essentially gangsters who have it in for him. And so he doesn't get the schooling that uh, he perhaps wants as a curious and uh, uh, inquisitive kid. Uh, and he's a, he's a very quiet kid and he's a very um, observant sort of onlooker to the things going on around him. And, um, you know, it's not, I, I don't know that it much more needs to be said uh, plot-wise. You said that beautifully. I mean, it's really just the vibe of the film is really because I think it is presented. You think, okay, how many cartel dramas have we seen? And, you know, his father yeah, is, a, is a sicario. And so um, before he is kind of, you know, taken out of his son's life. Um, but, and the, you know, there's violence in the film, but it is very underplayed in a way that I think feels very conscious and scrupulous. And there's just a... There's sort of this, I don't know, the way, even just the way he's framed, kind of, you know, not, the movie is very, I think my memory of it, my visual memory of the film is that it's, there are these very stately compositions that follow him, you know, a lot of back of the head cam, lots of, you know, kind of this poetic realism kind of register that the movie's shot in it. It gives you just the sense that almost the camera is sort of looking after him in a way that the women, especially the, the guard, the the guardians in his life and you know the movie and then the movie kind of when it tra moves to mexico city and he you know is safer there but very much on his own and then it sort of comes under the care of this this teacher and you know there's echoes of sort of you know countless you know how many inspirational you know pedagogical kind of kinds of dramas and the movie you know partakes of some of those but not in a way but it's a very light touch and there's this sort of tough love teacher student kind of relationship but it's just Everything about it feels just incredibly real, incredibly truthful, and by the end, it's it's quite moving. Yes. And I think the actor who um, is played by two actors, but the actor who plays uh, Suho for most of the movie, um, uh, whose name is I should not do actor's name. Name is, is escaping me, but um, yeah, he just it's this very he. I don't know if he's ever acted before. I I imagine no, but I, I could be wrong. But he just has this very watchful presence, and you just become you know you become very attached to him. So it's it's a really beautiful film, and I think that they're they're uh, and I know identifying features was um, got a great deal of attention, and I hope this one does too in the world dramatic section. Yeah, I, I second everything, especially the uh, the observation about the light touch of the the texture. I think it's a that was what I found perhaps most unexpected yes. uh, after, you know, going in, having read the, the description of the film, I expected something very heavy and very kind of masculine and just uh, uh, with, with a lot of machismo. And there's, there is that, that is in the film, but somehow there's a delicacy to it that took me by surprise and ultimately uh, uh, I found very moving in part because I think it's very anchored in the character of Suho and the performances that uh, uh, sort of build the character between the, the young Suho and the adolescent young adult yeah. Suho. Um, and I just, um, I came away from the film with a lot of affection for this character and, and protectiveness, like you said, towards him. And, and I, I think... Um, it's just, it's rare to, to, to feel so 
acutely uh, this this concern for the protagonist of a film, and and uh, it was it's a special film. It's exactly right. Yeah, no, and even just really quickly too, just the his relationship with his cousins, who yeah do become like his brothers, and like it's just very very well observed, I think, and the you know because you see them at a young age when there's a carefreeness, even though you know the very dire circumstances of of Suho's you know um, arrival in the family, but then. And then later on when there is, you know, they're still very close, but yeah, like he is not treated the same as them. And then by, by the end when there's a sort of, you know, without giving too much away, there is a further reckoning of sorts with just those relationships. And it's just you, it evolves, you know, in a very, very persuasive way over time. So, yeah. I will look out for Suho uh, when the online screenings become available. Uh, there's another movie that I haven't seen, but I believe the three of you have called A Real Pain. Uh I don't know anything about this one. So someone tell me, Vadim, come on. The, the title of Real Pain is displayed right next to Kieran Culkin's face, yes. uh, indicating that he is both a real pain and in some real pain. And as uh, the movie goes on, well, okay, so <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg and Kieran Culkin are cousins. Um, Jesse Eisenberg also directs. Yes, he's the writer and director. This is his sophomore Sundance effort after uh, 2020s, 2021s, excuse me, not so not so loved when you're finished, when you're finished saving, saving the world. I will be honest, I dislike that film so much. When I saw A Real Pain, I was like, Kieran Culkin, mm, I should add that to my schedule, directed by Jesse Eisenberg, removed <laughs> from right. the schedule. Now, I know that was a bit unfair, but he's not some scrappy up-and-coming director, so I gave him one chance. But tell me if uh, I missed out on something special. So the part of the reason I ended up seeing it was because uh, a friend of mine who had seen it before the festival said that I would like it, and he said it was kind of like Old Joy, but it's a Holocaust road trip, which <laughs> is... Yeah, you're laughing now. Uh, it's it's not. And uh, oh, man. a conversation I had earlier today, the correct point of comparison is actually Sideways, up tight, a odd couple road trip, da da da. Except the Holocaust. Um, anyway, Jesse and Kieran go to uh, Poland. The movie, as the opening credits tell us, is co-financed by the Polish Film Institute. And uh, sometimes they fight, but they reconcile. The stakes are escalated, etc. They both have a nice rapport, um, but unfortunately, the movie has drama. Um, the primary point of the movie is to allow Kieran Culkin to show uh, the the lighter side of Kieran Culkin, something that is not really his stock and trade. I have to admit, I've never actually watched Succession, so I had to kind of check. And I was I was told that um, you know we've come some ways since Igby goes down, but it's still fundamentally a negative performance, let's say. And this is um, a movie where he begins as this very jovial life of the party, and then eventually you're like, oh, he's probably somewhere on the bipolar spectrum. He has these eruption of rage, of depression, um, but ultimately it's it's all okay and in an understated way. And so that's I think. Um, I, I think it is fair to say, as a friend of mine described it, it has a what you call a, a television-friendly style um, that um, will make it a good fit for the Hulu platform if it ends up there. Uh, since it's been bought by Searchlight, it was the first big acquisition of the festival, $10 million. And uh, I have to be honest and say that I was at the what I believe was the premiere screening. That's how it was introduced. And while it played well and people exploded with laughter for Kieran Culkin on a regular basis, I did not get the feeling that we were about to see like you know one of the top twenty-five sales at Sundance. And I am a little I'm a little surprised because it's not very good. You know, like if you want to watch Kieran Culkin and Jesse Eisenberg do their thing, that'll it'll totally scratch that itch. But as a 
as a uh, even as a very kind of it, that it's understood that it'll be let's say generously archetypal character journey. It's uh, it's a little it's a little uh, under underdeveloped. I want to respond to a few things that you said, Vadim. Oh, um, not negatively, but just uh, as a as a fan of Succession, I think I, I want to. You could shed some light some on this. That would be great. Yeah. Um, to me, Kieran Culkin is giving a performance in this film that is middle class Roman Roy in a in a oh. really uh, uh, sort of foundational way. Uh, it should be noted that um part of the animating force of the film is uh the fact that these two cousins who grew up they're very close in age they grew up they were very close um that their paths have kind of diverged in adulthood jesse eisenberg's character has his life together he has a wife he has a child he has a job uh uh and he's taking this trip to poland sort of as a just as a as a pause in his life that is very full and you know rich and and uh he's he has anxiety and and he's got his problems but he i think uh prides himself or or tries to uh, aspires to have his problems under control and managed and sort of wrangled uh, whereas Kieran Culkin's character uh, is struggling. They have these two cousins have just lost their grandmother, uh, who was born in Poland, and that is the motivating driver of this trip that they're taking to go back to Poland to uh, visit. They go on a Holocaust tour, and they also go back to visit their grandmother's home, her original birth home. And Kieran Culkin's character uh, was very, very close to his grandmother and has taken her death incredibly hard and is uh we learn over the course of the film just how hard this loss has been on him and over the course of this trip that they're on with this small tour group uh he acts out in various ways he's a very charismatic charming person much like roman roy uh as jesse eisenberg describes it he uh, uh lights up the room and then shits on everything in it because he has this habit of charming the pants off of everybody and then kind of blowing up and and expressing his grief via anger or just sort of behaving badly. Um, and to me, I saw so much of his Emmy-winning final season of Succession performance uh, uh, in which, uh, spoiler, Roman Roy is grieving the death of his father for much of the season and um, similarly in this petulant kind of... Uh, uh, mode of having difficulty processing it and so that to me this this relationship between these two cousins was by far the most interesting part of the film uh and the framing story of this trip this sort of road trip through poland with this tour group um provides a setting that unfortunately sometimes kind of overshadows the film's strengths, which are this interpersonal drama. Uh, I think the sort of layering of this, of these ideas about, about um, collective uh, inherited trauma and generational trauma and, and sort of processing the pain of one's ancestors and of one's people and of one's cultural background and how that comes into conversation with one's own personal pain and how those two kinds of pain can, you know, uh, uh, interact. Um, there are a lot of interesting ideas circulating, but I think that ultimately this sort of um, 
Holocaust memorial thematics become a little bit, uh, they, they sort of neuter some of the force of that interpersonal drama. It's interesting because, yeah, it's a sort of kind of conventionally set up scenario that they're in. And yeah, it's like in this, I was curious to how they would actually handle what happens when they actually get to Maidanic concentration camp. And it's, uh, and I was, I'll say without giving too much away, sorry, I'm spoiled really, I, I was relieved that the way it's handled, um, because I think he's aware that he's approaching. The, the thing that I do like about the movie and that I think allows me, that part of it got past my defenses perhaps, is that he sort of engages that that discrepancy that I think you're describing, Maddie, like the, the fact, the degree to which you know, world historical tragedy, trauma, overshadowing. And, you know, the title to a real point, which Vadim pointed out is like, has double meaning and maybe, maybe even triple meaning. I don't know, because it's about, you know, what, what pain is real versus what is just, you know, I, I like the scene when Jesse Eisenberg, they're at this dinner table and Kieran Culkin has just acted out and left. And he's, Jesse's sort of like apologizing for his cousins and sort of, and for the first time really kind of giving voice to his own. And he describes his pain as unexceptional. And I really, of anything in the script that's kind of stayed with me. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's pain you can process, pain that is not even worth speaking of versus what is, what is real, what is actually, and, and, and but can, you know, it, when you're comparing across, across eras, like what, the thing that I liked about Kieran Culkin's performance is that it does, you know, some of it does feel like, oh yeah, traditional blowhardy asshole behavior on, you know, the life of the party, whatever. But, but there are these moments where he, it really does feel, seem to well up from something genuine. Like he, oh yeah. When they're on, like when, I don't know when they're on the, the train and they're like, and he's like, why are we sitting in first class? Because don't, you know, it's like, what, you know, the Jews were not allowed to, you know, we're, we're, this is obscene that we're in first class and enjoying this. And I don't know. It's, it's when I even say it on paper, it sounds like ridiculous but he they, i don't know he has this ability to convince you that oh this character actually is feeling that i don't know for me it was anyways so i don't know and i i liked the i like the economy of it i think that it it sort of is you know even though it is sort of trying to compress a clearly very fraught relationship into a one week journey that actually lasts nine you know 90 minutes or whatever and it is it's interesting too it's for the it, it does have kind of a televisual style but it's also kind of beautifully photographed by by of all people uh, michael dimek the cinematographer on eo so which is so that's an interesting follow-up project uh there's a kind together. of you know, even though it's, wow. you know it's not you know it's it's a you know it, it's not eo but it's but there's a kind of luminosity to there's a nice texture i want i wanted know. more cityscape tourism stuff because you can just kind of see it and it's like oh there's more they kept going for a while it's like yeah. yeah, the architectural compositions were one of the highlights of the film. You get, you get to see the diversity of architecture in Warsaw, which is nice, and it also gives them an excuse to play Chopin like the whole time, which is totally fun. Well, a real pain doesn't sound like a real pain. That that's what I was fearing. <laughs> Nicely so, done. See, Justin, I was waiting that's, for your. No, what's your I, I have what's seated, your best Sundance pun so far? I have seated so the far? baton. Oh my god, no! <laughs> I have not had time. Come on, your puns. brain. I know your brain is constantly in the background <laughs> producing them. <laughs> Last year, like Justin just regaled me with. It's because Jessica was there, so <laughs> she's my true. worst enabler. But no, yeah. no, I did think about tweeting um, my old ass with a photo from Ohazar Balthazar or from EO. Actually, would have been better, but no. Um, 
Justin, you, I think there's a movie you saw that none of us saw uh, that you really liked, Black Box Diaries. Um, yes, I just came out of this like an hour ago. Uh, Black Box Diaries, a documentary directed by Shiori Ito and a very uh, her harrowing experience chronicling um, her attempt to seek justice for her own sexual assault by a prominent uh, fellow Japanese journalist. And that happened in 2015. And the movie takes you through her experience in a way that, you know, it's not flashy filmmaker or anything, but at the same time, it feels completely raw because she is putting herself on camera and f- taking you in a very, you know, investigative procedural kind of approach into, you know, into the courts, into her conversations with police, being stonewalled at every turn. Um, by a system that, you know, you think of the degree to which sexual assault and rape is, you know, s- suppressed and 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 victims are not believed, victims are not, survivors are not, um, you know, grant, not able to achieve justice. It's like, it, it really opens a window into how truly terrible that is, situation is in Japan. And this, you know, and, and the timing of this is right around, you know, it spans a period from 2015 really to the present day, but a special focus on 2017, so right when Me Too is kind of exploding in America and elsewhere. And it does show um, some progress, and so you know, but it's it, it's also just a fascinating window into, you know, like in Japan and laws, you know, laws, you know, with regard to sexual assault, there's no even provision for like consent, for example. And so, how do you, you know, as a as a survivor trying to seek justice, how do you get past that? I mean, and there are moments of individual heroism from people, as you know, she really kind of did light the spark to allow people to come forward and 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 um, stand with her and advocate for her and the the really haunting thing about it is that you realize but because she's writing this book about her experiences along even as she's reporting even as she is um you know talking to people and it, the idea is that wow if she weren't a journal like it's her journalistic acumen and her courage that allows her to really pursue this because otherwise she has the tools but if she didn't you know would she just be another statistic. So it's very, very powerful and it's very good. That's very interesting. Um, I believe there was a Washington Post journalist, Washington Post or WSJ, was it Washington Post who was banned from covering or reporting on sexual assault because she... Felicia Sonmez, uh, right? Yes. Yeah, Washington Post, right? Washington Post, correct, yes. Because she had been public about her own experience with rape, which I thought was just this... (laughs) you know, kind of shocking development, uh, this idea that a sexually assaulted woman cannot report objectively. I think that would rule out like, you know, how like most, yeah, like most of us women. Um, so this is really, yeah, the, the way you describe it, like her journalistic acumen is actually what is helping her absolutely uh, yeah. bring forward this experience is, is really interesting. Um, Maddie, I know you have to jump off soon too. And there's a movie that you saw that you've been recommending to me for a little while now called A Good One. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, the film is Good One, directed by India uh, Donaldson. Donaldson. Thank you, Vadim. Uh, I was just about to look it up. Roger but you... Donaldson representation, yes. Yes. Uh, it is a film that I was kind of, kind of blown away by unexpectedly. I went into the film... Uh, uh, a little bit wary, you know, because based on the description and sort of the f- first movement of the film, 
I was concerned that it might end up feeling like just sort of a, a old joy redux. You mentioned old joy in relation to a real pain. Well, this is a film about two old college friends, uh, these middle-aged men who uh, go on a camping trip. And the wrinkle that differentiates this movie from the jump from old joy, which of course is a, you know, ter- Kelly Reichardt's terrific uh, uh, film is that uh, one of the two men brings along his teenage daughter. And so it's this camping trip between these two college friends and the teenage daughter of one of them. And ultimately, the film sort of takes that premise of old joy of these two friends sort of reconnecting and coming together from their disparate uh, lives to, to try and reconnect and adds this sort of axis of the father-daughter relationship and the father is played by James LaGrosse who's a terrific actor love to see him in anything and um so the bulk of the film is these it's sort of a chamber piece between these three characters and it's not a plotty film there is an incident that happens in the final act of the film that casts everything that's happened before it into a different kind of relief and by the end of the film, you sort of realize that the entire thing has been a learning experience for the daughter that change, will change the way that she sees her father moving forward and change the way that she sees the relationship between her father and this dear old friend of her father's. And uh, it's just beautifully acted, just really exquisite performances. The writing is incredibly sensitive at sort of capturing the rhythms of what this dialogue, you know, the dialogue between two dads and a teen girl, you can kind of imagine that that might be a tricky and sort of dicey proposition. And it's just so beautifully executed in uh, 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 the way that this story is developed. I just want everyone to see this film. I think it's a really uh, 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 lovely and um, surprising debut. And uh, I, I just am happy to be able to shout it out. Sounds like good one is indeed a good one. <laughs> On that note, I think we'll ra- wrap up. Yeah, Justin, I have stolen. I'm like zero for two. I've, I've stolen your crown. <laughs> Although I, I, would, I don't know how these weren't all that smart. I got to say they were like. They were great. Right there. It was more the delivery. <laughs> Uh, but on that note, I think we'll wrap up this one. Uh, thank you to all three of you uh, for joining the podcast. Um, you know, we're almost, I think we're all almost to the end of our Sundance in-person uh, stint. And I appreciate that I was able to steal you all and uh, enjoy your uh, last few hours, days in Park City. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 